following message is by Dr. Steve Lee of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. In my last two messages, we looked at this parable of the prodigal son, which we've been calling the parable of the two lost sons. And as we said in that message, as I was saying in that message, um, for some of us, we're on this journey of the younger son, longing for the temptations and the promises of that distant land. Uh, And it's often a journey that takes us into spectacular failures and obvious sin. It's the journey of someone who is clearly in need of God's mercy and grace. But some of us are also like the older son, who never left home, but stayed by the father's side, uh, serving all along. And yet, as we saw in that parable, even the older son turns out to be just as lost, if not even more lost, than his younger brother. Because to the older son, life was about getting what you deserved. Because frankly, the older son thought he deserved a lot. After all of these years of faithfulness, God owed him. God had become his debtor. Um... For the older son, grace felt like a threat rather than a welcome gift because the truth is he never really felt he needed this grace from his father. And so the older son represents everyone who tries to justify themselves by the kind of life that they live, the good life that they live. It's about people who see religion as ultimately following a set of rules. And whoever follows them the best wins and earns God's approval. And so as we've been, as as we uh, saw, as the parable was unpacked, the message of the prodigal son or the two lost sons is that there are many ways in which to be lost. We can be lost by running spectacularly away from God and rebelling against him, living a life, quote, life of sin. Or we could stay right entrenched in the doors of the church and yet still be far from God if we try to define our sense of worthiness by what we can do for him and by our own works. But the parable ultimately is the story of a father's love that reaches out to both of his lost sons, offering them the same grace that they both so desperately need. And so the story of the prodigal reminds us that no matter what our, where our journey takes us, no matter how far we may go from God, um, we're never so far that his love cannot reach us. But the parable that follows next, the one that we're going to look at today, gives us the other side of the story. In God's eyes, what does it mean to live a worthwhile life? How do I not squander my life? like the prodigal did. What does it mean to live effectively in the eyes of God? Well, we turn to Luke 16, verses 1 through 13, and the text reads, 
He also said to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, what is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, what shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I am not strong enough to dig and I am ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? He said, a hundred measures of oil. He said to him, take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. Then he said to another, and how much do you owe? He said, a hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and write 80. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. One who is faithful in a little is also faithful in much, and one who is dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters. For the either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Lord, give us insight and understanding to this rather difficult parable. Difficult both in comprehension as well as in obedience. And help open our eyes to see the worthiness of Christ alone who is worthy of our total surrender and our total trust. For it is in his name we pray. Amen. Of all the parables that we find that Jesus taught, which have been recorded in the Gospels, there's pretty wide agreement that the one that we just looked at in our scripture reading this morning is the most difficult. It's the most problematic. In fact, some Bible scholars, some rather famous Bible scholars, have struggled with this passage so much, and the problem seems so insurmountable, that they've even really questioned, could this really have been an authentic part of Jesus' teaching? C.C. Um, Torrey summarizes the problems with this parable in the following way. This passage brings before us a new Jesus, one who seems inclined to compromise with evil. He approves a program of canny self-interest, recommending to his disciples a standard of life which is generally recognized as inferior. I say to you, gain friends by means of money. This is not the worst of it. He bases the teaching on the story of a shrewd scoundrel who feathered his own nest at the expense of the man who had trusted him and then appears to say to his disciples, let this be your model. Okay? In, in other words, the story we were presented with here is actually rather, uneth rather unethical behavior. It's not the kind of stuff that we would recommend anyone to follow. 
And yet that seems to be exactly what Jesus is saying. You see this guy? Look at what he did. How come you guys are not more like him? And we scratch our heads and say, are you serious, Jesus? Are you really telling us to be like this guy who cheated his boss? Well, in order to really understand the point of Jesus' teaching and this parable, I want to first sort of unpack the elements of this parable and then see what specific principles Jesus is trying to draw out from it. The story begins with a man who holds this position of what in our day would be considered like an accountant or an estate manager for what is presumed to be a rather wealthy man. And he has been caught squandering his master's estate. And he is fired immediately and commanded to turn in his ledger books before he sees himself out the door. It's interesting. He doesn't protest his innocence. He doesn't try to mount a defense against these accusations. There, there is this implicit understanding that he is caught red-handed and that there is no way for him to talk his way out of this termination. It's over for him. He's caught. He's busted. But this doesn't mean that he's going to take his fate laying down. Once he's alone, his mind starts racing and he tries to figure out what he's going to do to get himself out of the situation. And he starts the calculus and he says, well, maybe I could be a day laborer. And he goes, no, I can't do that. And he kind of looks at his body and he realizes he doesn't have the physique to dig ditches. So he says, I can't be a blue collar worker. I just can't go there. And then he thinks about begging. Well, maybe I can walk the streets of our village and and ask for money, but it's just the mere thought of it is repulsive to him. It's, it's just too much shame to ask his neighbors for handouts. And his mind is racing, and he says, what do I do? What do I do? I don't know if any of you have ever experienced being laid off and the pain and the panic that comes with it. Maybe if you have ever been let go from a job, you understand the sheer panic of a situation like that, scrambling to figure out what you're going to do to pay your bills. You see, he wasn't some young buck fresh out of college who could crash at his parents' house for the next few years until he figures his life out. He's in all likelihood middle-aged. He has children to feed. He's got a mortgage to pay. He's got appearances to maintain in society. And so his mind is literally racing in overdrive to try to figure out what he's going to do with his situation, this mess that he's got himself into. And he finally hatches a plan. And so one by one, the manager calls in the debtors of his master to his office. And he decides to renegotiate everybody's debt. Basically, cooking the books, as we say today. Um, how much do you owe him? A hundred? Just write 50 on the bill. How much do you owe him? A hundred measures of wheat? Write it for 80. Um, there have been a lot of attempts to try to figure out what's going on here. And particularly out of a desire, since Jesus lifts him up as an actual example for us to follow, to try to put his behavior in the most ethical light as possible. 
So some scholars have argued that maybe the reason why he deducted so much from their debt was that he was basically cutting that amount from his own commission. But there's really no justification for any of those conclusions. When you really look at it, it's in fact, the new amount is written on the invoice itself. And so it really becomes clear that it's the boss who's going to take that loss, not the manager himself. The bottom line is that we cannot escape the fact that this guy behaved unethically. Okay? He basically lowered everyone's debt at the expense of his boss on his way out so that he could pad his own future. I think in truth, probably what he was anticipating was either someone's going to take him into his house or maybe even one of these guys that he made a deal with will offer him a job because he's going to be out on the street the next day. The boss discovers what this guy has done. (laughs) And what ought to follow next is obvious to everyone. He ought to call the authorities and have this guy arrested for his illegal financial dealings. Or in the least, probably ought to hire some thugs to exact street justice, right? I mean, beat the guy up and teach him a lesson as he throws him out the door. But Jesus does something that he does so often in his parables. He throws a twist in the story. And the boss does neither of these things. In fact, he does something that's rather outrageous. He compliments the manager. It's as if he looks at his manager with a knowing smile and a wag of his finger. He says, you're good. You are really good. Um, you got me. Well played, my friend. It's, that's the way that this boss reacts to this guy. And then Jesus says, do the same. <laughs> you know? Um, it's this boss's unexpected and utterly inappropriate response that causes the biggest problems with interpreting this parable. Because on the surface, it looks like what Jesus is commending is immoral behavior. But that's actually not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is not saying, if you can get away with it, cheat, steal, and lie your way through life. Especially if it's for my kingdom, you know? I bless you with that. Go for it. That's not what Jesus is saying. In order to understand what he is actually saying, you have to look more closely at verse 8. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. You see, the manager is not being praised for his cheating. Jesus is not interested in the immorality or the morality of the choices that the manager made. What he is interested in is his shrewdness. His shrewdness. That is what's being commended here. Shrewdness we can define in the following way. Marked by a clever discerning awareness. Or artfully dealing with. With a situation. In other words, what Jesus is saying is that this manager 
was clever enough to discern how desperate his situation is. That he is going to be on the street the next day, jobless. And he was also resourceful enough to figure out a way out of the mess that he got himself into. He, in other words, channeled all of his ingenuity, intelligence, sharpness of mind to make a way forward for his future and to fix his life. And what Jesus is saying is, from that perspective, my own disciples could learn a thing or two from a manager like this. Uh, reflecting on this lesson of Jesus to his disciples, I, I, what came to mind was this guy that I used to work with. Back in the day when I was a doctor, um, this other fellow doctor got hired at the same time as I did to this pretty large medical practice here in the Chicagoland area. And he got assigned to one clinic and I was in another. And what happened was that his clinic wasn't doing so well in the, in the, in the part of the Chicagoland where, where the uh, office was situated. And so after about a year or two, he was let go from the practice. And what happened next is what interests me so much. I watched with, this, with amazement as my friend basically marshaled all of his resources to figure out what he was going to do because he was out of a job. And so he embarked on this massive project to figure out the best place for him to live in America as a doctor. And so he would be scouring the internet and researching every single facet of this decision. I mean, he was looking at where the job market was the best for primary care doctors, but then he also accounted for home, uh, home sale prices. He was looking into the best places to have a recreational life, the best place for a dating scene because he was single, I mean, the guy did unbelievable level of research. And he would be constantly letting me know what the progress was in, in trying to figure it out. And after weeks of doing this, he finally came to me and goes, says, Steve, I figured it out. It's Las Vegas. <laughs> he said, it's Las Vegas. He said, Las Vegas meets all the criteria for the kind of life I want to live. And sure enough, within a couple weeks, he had moved to Las Vegas and gotten a job as a primary care doctor. And over the next year or two, he would call me about every few months, giving me sort of a status update of his life. And sure enough, it was really amazing. Everything that the guy had engineered was coming to fruition. I mean, within six months, he had more than doubled the salary that he was making in Chicago. And he had bought this enormous house with a swimming pool. Uh, a few months later, he had a girlfriend that he was dating seriously. He was now looking at investment properties that he wanted to buy in the expanding home market in Las Vegas. And it just took my breath away. Because <laughs> I never met a guy like this before. who Someone who so systematically figured their life out down to the year that he wanted to retire. And Jesus was, is in essence saying this. Look at how clever the people of the world are when it comes to looking after their own self-interest. And then he seems to be saying to his disciples, why don't my disciples display that same shrewdness 
when it comes to investing in the things they say they believe in. It says in verse 9, And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. In other words, if those in this world use their resources to gain every advantage they can in this momentary life, how much more should Jesus' disciples shrewdly leverage their earthly resources for investments that will last for eternity? Amen? It's interesting that Jesus refers to our earthly resources as, quote, unrighteous wealth. It's clear from the rest of the Bible's teaching on money that money in and of itself is not inherently evil. But so why does he call it unrighteous wealth? I think Jesus is using language like this to make the point that the truth is so often money does lead us to rather selfish and even sinful goals that are not God-honoring. I think what Jesus is saying is, is this. Regardless of the ethics of this dishonest manager, what he could be commended for is that his choices that he made in life were consistent with his beliefs. From this perspective, you could make the argument that this manager actually had more integrity than many Christians do, who say one thing with their mouths and yet live in an entirely contrary manner when it comes to the way that we spend our money. How you spend your money is one of the most honest indicators of what you really believe about your eternal destiny. You see... The dishonest manager had no doubt of the reality that by tomorrow, the same time as today, he would be out on the street without a job. And based on that belief of that reality, he marshaled all of his resourcefulness to make sure that he was going to be okay tomorrow. And what I think Jesus is saying is, what is your reality? What do you believe about your tomorrow and what really counts in life? Because does your pocketbook reflect that reality? Do you really invest in the things that you think are going to last beyond the things of this world, beyond this life? Are you leveraging all of your intelligence and resourcefulness as well as your wealth around the belief that God calls us to store our treasures in heaven? I think this leads us to this next point in Jesus' teaching. Found in verses 10 through 12. One who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? In other words, I think what Jesus is saying is this. Show faithful stewardship with what you have right now not in an imagined future that may never come to pass. Because I think the truth is this. We often find ourselves thinking that we would be willing to commit more of our resources, more of our wealth, more of our possessions to God's work if we didn't struggle so much with the current limitations of our present life. 
all the bills I have to pay, all of the unexpected needs that show up in my life. I mean, these are the pressing things that I have to attend to, but I'm hopeful that one day, one day out there, I'll be able to be generous and sacrificial in the things that God has entrusted into my care. And Jesus says, it doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. Be faithful with what is in your hands right now. That will demonstrate your worthiness to receive more from him through which you can be more of a blessing for his kingdom. Um, Greg Tanelshav says something interesting about beliefs. He says, Beliefs are sometimes demanding. Often they break in on us unexpectedly and take to ordering us around like uninvited tyrants. One minute we're sailing happily through life. The next minute we find ourselves with an uncomfortably demanding belief. This tyrant takes office and issues an imperative with such compelling force that we're unable to look him in the eye and say no. The tyrant's authority, the seemingly obvious truth of the belief, rings through with such piercing clarity as to rule out the very thought of direct quarrel. Nothing other than unquestioned obedience can be seriously entertained. While the tyrant will have nothing of direct defiance, though he can often be appeased by the promise of deferred obedience. You know what Tanelshoff is saying is this. Sometimes beliefs have a way of intruding into your life unwelcome. And they stare you right in the face and say, this is truth. This is reality. What are you going to do about it? And the truth is often our conscience is stricken. And we look at our lives and say, my life is not in alignment with that truth. I'm not living consistent with that belief. And as Tanelshoff suggests, you, you can't just go, I don't believe this. This is not true. And so you have to figure out a way to somehow manage that truth. And what Tanelshoff says is a very powerful and effective way to manage that truth is to defer it, to say, I'll get to it later. I'll attend to it at a future date. He, he makes this interesting parallel with childbirth, the way that women convince themselves to have more children after the trauma of the first birth. Okay? It says, what woman in her right mind, after going through one labor experience, would ever go through another? <laughs> and so he writes like this. She has been in labor for 15 hours, and she's only dilated two centimeters. She's exhausted, discouraged, and in terrible pain. The lights are too bright. The nurse on duty is not sufficiently responsive. And her husband, bless him for trying so hard, reeks of onion rings. She'd lose her stomach if there was anything in it to lose. She's starving. But the very thought of eating is insufferable. She's dying of thirst, and they're feeding her ice chips. Ice chips! The tyrant takes office. She finds herself with the belief that no rational person would do this voluntarily twice. She will never do this again. She must never do this again. She must promise never to do this again. And I laughed when I read this because as a doctor, having sat in dozens of deliveries, you often see women rationalize stuff like this. I will never do this again, you know? 
This is the last one. It's interesting. This is why most hospitals will not do a tubal ligation right after a pregnancy, right? Because you're not clearly thinking in that moment, right? You're not in your rational mind. In that moment, you'll say, I will never have another child. But as he goes on, we all know, and all but firstborn children among us are thankful for what happens next. Slowly, the belief that childbirth is unbearable fades into obscurity along with its categorical demand never to go in for it again. It wasn't really unbearable. After all, I made it. And look at my beautiful baby girl. It's a reasonable trade-off. That pain for the miracle in my arms. The tyrant is gone. Okay? It's an interesting logic, isn't it? In that moment, the only truth that that woman knows as she's in labor is, this is horrible. I will never do this again. I don't know what I was thinking. And she may even swear to that truth that I won't do this again. But it's this idea, separate yourself from that truth long enough. Get away and distance yourself enough. And those convictions fade away to the point where you'll say, should we try again? Why not? Let's have number two. And then in our church, number three, number four, number five, and... Yes, number six. Um, The cold, naked truth is that delivering a baby is one of the most traumatic experiences that a woman can undergo in this life. And yet in that moment of labor, nothing shouts more loudly than that truth. But given enough time, it won't be long before that conviction fades into distant memory. And the same happens For us as Christians, as we are convicted by different beliefs about what it means to live out what we believe about truth. And the truth is this. You don't necessarily have to act on that truth or that conviction immediately in order to satisfy your conscience. All you have to do is tell yourself that you intend to obey it at some future point in time. And in truth, that will often be enough to satisfy your conscience and convince yourself that you are a good person living in obedience to the things that God wants of you. And that's what's really frightening about obedience deferred. Is I don't have to actually change anything in my lifestyle when I'm confronted by truths like what we're looking at today in this passage. Because the truth is, if I were to assess my present situation... I know my life is not in alignment with this truth. But I can somehow make promises to God that one day I will do this. And that's enough. I feel better. It's okay now. The intention alone to live out our beliefs at some future point in time is often all we need to let even our strongest convictions fade harmlessly into the back of our minds. Even though that future will most likely never come to pass. And I think what Jesus is saying is this. It's not about tomorrow. It's about right now, this moment. What is it that God has entrusted in the present to your care as a steward? And how are you investing that for his kingdom work? What may not be much right now, it may be very little, but with that little that has been entrusted to you, Will you be faithful? And this leads me to the final point that I want to close with, found in verse 13. 
No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. I think some of you, as you're hearing what I'm sharing this morning, may be asking yourselves, like, what are you really saying? Are you saying that, like, I can't go on uh, a nice fantasy vacation? Are you telling me that as a Christian, it's wrong to live in a big house or drive a nice car? Um, What are you exactly telling me that Jesus is asking of me? And what I want to say is, those are the wrong questions to start with. Okay? Those are the wrong questions to start with. Um, The fundamental question that Jesus is asking us when it comes to money is this. Who has the first place of your heart? What or who controls your heart? Is it God or is it money? In other words, it's not only about dollar figures. It's about worship. Who or what will you allow to capture your heart? Uh, And he says... Out of that answer will flow all the other answers about what kind of house to buy, what kind of cars to buy, what kind of lifestyle to live. And as Jesus is laying it out here, his point is there is no middle ground. I think all of us have this sort of illusion of a middle ground of, you know, I don't understand why you're making such a big deal out of this. I mean, I can have it both. I can live the life I've always wanted with the things that money affords me. And I can serve God. And what's frightening is Jesus seems to be suggesting it's not so easy like that. Because the truth is that money has a power over us that most of us are not willing to acknowledge. Because money, in essence, promises us the same things that God promises us. All those things that you define as the good life, That's the happy life. The truth is, money dangles that in front of you and says, through me, you can have it all. I can give you that good life. I can give you that happiness. I can give you that satisfaction that you long for. And what Jesus says is, you need to make a fundamental declaration in your life about who you think is a worthy master for you. Is it me or is it money? And I think for all of us, we need to be brutally honest with that wrestling. What really has control of my heart? Is it my wealth? Is it the hope of a good retirement, of a golden parachute, of vacationing in the Bahamas every day in my retirement years, sailing the oceans in my yacht? Or maybe something more modest and yet still just as consuming. I think ultimately what Jesus is arguing is this. I am the only one worthy of that investment, that surrender, that trust. In John chapter 10, verse 10 through 11, Jesus says, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life. And have it to the full. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down 
his life for the sheep. What Jesus is saying is all the other false masters out there, like money, that promise you everything in this world will only rob you and cheat you and steal from you. They will leave you naked and wanting and unfulfilled. I am the only one, if you spend your entire life investing in my kingdom, that at the end of the day when you breathe your last, you can truly surrender your life and know you have lived for the right things in this world. I alone can give you that satisfaction of a life well lived. You see, ultimately this fight of stewardship and money is not a fight about sacrifice and heroism. But I've said, as I've said so often behind this pulpit, the ultimate fight of the Christian life is the fight of faith. What do I really believe about reality? What do I really believe about my eternal destiny and where this world is headed? And in light of that belief, how do I want to orient my entire life, all of my values, all of my resources, all of my income to prepare myself for that future, for myself and my family? That is ultimately what we are asked to wrestle with. I want to just close with this very brief couple-minute video that maybe some of you may have seen on social media, which just sort of gives us a visual representation of what it means to live with a limited number of days in this world. So let's just take a look at this, and then we'll just wrap up and close here. Let's, uh, Let's pray. As we get ready to come to the Lord's table, I want to invite you to spend some time in reflection about Jesus' teaching today. Um, he, interestingly, so often in his stories, will use rather unsavory characters like this dishonest manager in some rather shocking and surprising ways. Um, and I think... There's undoubted shock value that's almost distracting about the unethical behavior of this guy. But Jesus is asking us to try to look past the morality of his behavior to see his shrewdness. And he says, look at the way that the world lives. Look at those outside the church. Look at the ingenuity and aggression and energy and passion with which they try to engineer a future for themselves based on the reality of their worldview. And he says, uh, but the sons of light, they don't live like that. They live half-heartedly. They live as if they don't really believe in the future that they profess. The fight of Christianity is always the fight of faith. What do I fundamentally believe about my future? And does the way that I conduct myself align with that belief? And as I shared just a little while ago, um, one of the easiest ways to deal with messages like this is to defer obedience, to say, I'm convicted by this message. And I, I know that if truth be told, my life doesn't really align with this right now, but You know, one day, I'm sure, when God blesses me with more resources and I'm living a little more comfortably and I don't have so many bills to pay, um, I really feel like I'm going to obey this one day and live this kind of generous, sacrificial, 
uh, trusting life. And Jesus says, it it doesn't work that way. Um, Be faithful with whatever you have, little or great, right now. And then as he really brings his argument to the most critical point, he says, you know what it really comes down to is, what do you worship in your life? Who is God to you? And the truth is, um, money will hold itself as a very viable contender in most of our eyes to God. Because whatever it is that we may hope for and pray for in God, money offers us what seems to be the same thing, security, happiness, a good life. And so I think the invitation is this, is uh, to recognize that money will never deliver on that promise. Live your life for wealth. And at the end of it all, very unlikely that you're going to end your life feeling like it was meaningful and worthwhile. But live it for Christ. Live it for God. And he alone is the one that will allow you to end your days with a real sense of meaning and fulfillment and purpose. He alone is the good shepherd. Everyone else is a thief that will make promises to you, but will steal and take away. Only God alone is the one that is really going to give to you. And so can we just offer a moment of prayer to ourselves and uh, to, to God about ourselves and just maybe reflect and say, you know, what is it that God may be asking of me even this day? And in just a little bit, we're going to uh, sing a song and then come to this table. And I think it's important that even after a message like this, we come to the Lord's table because the message of Christianity is not give me, give me, give me from the lips of God. It's even in the giving and the surrender, it's about what we receive from God, the good that he wants to do in our lives. And so if you've been struggling in your own heart, this tug of war to figure out where your allegiances lie, and if you've struggled with the temptations of this world, Maybe this is something that we can come before God to and say, open my eyes to see the worthiness of Christ and see that he alone deserves that center place in my heart. And once that is in its right, once Christ is in his rightful place, everything else will flow out of that in terms of the decisions that I make regarding my wealth, my family, my time, the days that I have on this earth. Let's just pray and in a little bit here our worship team will lead with us in a song before we come to the Lord's table.